With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Just one ball left in the over now, and the Badger is on 99. England require two more to win. Just one ball left in the over. Marshall at the top of his mark. Richards, Richardson, Lloyd in the slips. Greenwich at gully. Calicharan in the covers. Haynes lurking under the lid at short leg. Michael holding at fine leg. He'll be bowling the next over. Badger somehow got to get to the other end. He can't allow Willis to face holding. Here comes Marshall. He's in. And that's been tucked around the corner. He's got it. He's got it. He's made it. The Badger has made a hundred. He lifts his helmet off. He removes his gloves. He kisses the ground. Hordes and streams of nubile, attractive women come charging onto the outfield, hugging the young man. Oh, my word. How must he feel? And England, the scores are tied. Hi, everybody. This is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. So, Badger, my goodness me, you brought up your first ton in international podcasting history. How on earth must you be feeling today? It's amazing, Dan. It seems like a long time since I, I got off the mark and nudged it into mid-wicket and ran that first quick single. And now to be on 100, you know, raising my bat. Those new ball young women that you spoke about seem to disappear very quickly, but it's fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. And you know, to think that the, the people in the crowd have listened to those podcasts and have enjoyed them and have contacted me and told me how much they've liked them. It means all the more to me to reach three figures, lift my bat, and hopefully we can go on and make a few more. Oh, well, indeed, Badger. I mean, it's been a marvellous, marvellous watching your journey. I mean, there must be people you've got to thank who have got you there along the way. Well, I think, first of all, you guys in, in radio. I mean, I've worked in radio a bit myself, but the TMS gang and, and you know, that make it good to listen to cricket-related things audio-wise, I think is very important because I think, you know, the means of listening to them, people speaking is becoming increasingly popular, which is, is quite bizarre in a, in a day of kind of digital technology where you can watch YouTube and pretty much see everything in the world. 
you know, people still like to stick their earphones in or sit back and listen to people talking about cricket, I think it's fantastic. So TMS has a, a huge amount to be proud of, I think, throughout uh, its 50-plus years. And other podcasts too. I've worked with a few other people that have done other podcasts I mean, in the cricket world, and they're all massively important wherever they are in the world because it gets more and more people listening to cricket and, and talking about cricket and loving cricket, which is important. Um, but I think the listeners, basically, you know, people have grown with me. When we first started on the Cricket Badger podcast, there was really only a handful of people listening to it. I felt like I was talking to myself at times, but it's grown and grown and grown. The, the listener figures have gone up massively over the last 12 months. So thank you to everybody that's listened to it. And as I say, hopefully we can get some more great guests on and talk about some more great cricket as we go over the next few years. Well, I was going to say, I mean, expectations will now grow, I mean, after a performance like that today. So, Jane, where do you see the Badger in five years' time, Badger? Um, I'd like to get a bit more kit, get a bit more mobile with the podcast and go to a few games and, and interview people in person rather than the majority of the interviews have been done over the phone and, and down at times dodgy Skype lines and things like that. So, Well, um, yeah, I'm sure yeah. if sponsors are listening, Badger, I mean, they're going to be all over you now. Flavour of the month, I mean, it wasn't just a new bar women. I mean, it was the, the grateful thanks for nation that we felt earlier today. Yeah, it, it is getting to a, a big audience now, not just in, in the UK, but around the world. Yeah, I think some of the guests we've had, I mean, that's, that's the other group to thank, um, yourself included, Dan, because you've been on the podcast more than once now. And yeah, the guests that we've had on from David Gower, you know, Gordon Greenwich, who was in the field there when I was, I was getting my century. Joel Garner, who, who was on it very briefly, but uh, we made friends with Joel Garner in, in the Caribbean after my very abrupt interview with him in, in uh, Barbados. Yeah, two to current players, you know, the likes of Keaton Jennings and Gary Balance and and some of the other guys, uh, Michael Carberry, on just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Make it a great listen, because I think it's quite varied. We have guests on that we talk to about their cricket in lives, and then we have people who are involved in cricket about their thoughts in cricket. It's a varied kind of podcast. It's found its niche, I think, and found its feet and starting to run, and uh, hopefully it can run quite a long way. Well, here is to the next 5, 10, 20 years, however long it takes. Now then, Badger, uh, the normal way these things are done is that uh, you tend to ask people a series of questions. You, you are the interrogator. That's right. Now, uh, I, I think it's time that some of these questions were put, put back at you, right back at you. Um, <laughs> Often thought, Dan, when I've asked some of these questions, how I would answer them myself, and we're going to find out, aren't we? Well, we are going to find out. We are going to find out. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to them. I'm, I'm happy to, to give you my answers as well, but I think yours are the ones that the, the listeners will be most interested in. So we're going to start at the top. Why, why cricket? Why why cricket of all things? Why not? I mean, you're a Yorkshireman. It could have been basketballs or ferreting or greyhound racing, pigeon fancying. So, so why cricket? Cricket is something that I fell into. It actually wasn't anything to do with, with Yorkshire when I first got into cricket. My, my mum's side of the family comes from down in Kent. I went down with my grandma, who is sadly departed, but was very important in my young life. And she took me down one August to see my great uncle Reg and my great auntie Joyce. And we stayed with them for two weeks in uh, Ashford in Kent and my great uncle was a member at the St Lawrence ground and he was ill one day and his son came to pick him up to go to the cricket on a, a John Player League game. Coincidentally, actually, I mean, I say it wasn't anything to be Yorkshire, Kent were playing Yorkshire that day and they looked at me in the corner, minding my own business as I always do, and they said, is he old enough, do you think, to go and go to the cricket instead of uh, my uncle Reg that day? So my second cousin or whatever he was, John, drove me to the cricket ground a little bit apprehensive that this fidgety young kid was going to basically be the bane of his life for the next five hours. And I sat there 
and never moved a muscle. I just watched this game unfold in front of me as all of these guys in, in whites, as they were in the, in the one-day game back then, played their, their cricket. At the interval, there was two old ladies that had been knitting in the stands in front of me, came back from their little walk and got me some fruit pastels because I'd been so good. Um, but I didn't actually feel that I was being good. I was actually just sat there enjoying it. And from that day on, I was buying school books and I was buying postcards from the, the, the tent to get autographed by the players. Um, I was watching the likes of Derek Underwood and Alan Knott and um, some of the, the greats of yesteryear in Kent history back then. Your co-commentator, Jeffrey Boycott, didn't make very many that day, as I remember. But I was just transfixed by this game just unfolding in front of me. And as soon as I got back home, switched the telly on, started watching it free to air in those days, obviously. Bought a bat, started playing in the back, in the back garden and... The rest is history, as they say. Cricket's never left me. Oh, well, it's a very familiar tale. I have to say that my own hurtling towards cricket, I, I can't 100% remember. I remember the first game I was at, which was the 1976 Oval Test Match. When um, uh, Viv Richards got 291, Dennis Amy's got double hundred. It was boiling hot. And uh, very similarly, I didn't move. But I, I was already obsessed by then. I don't quite remember how. I think I was sort of stuck in... A darkened room with the curtains closed is the only place you could find my dad during summer. And of course, you know, summer holidays, any time you sort of connect with your parents, isn't it really? Because you're at school and you come home and he didn't go to bed. So if you wanted to connect with your dad, you had to go into a darkened room with closed curtains and watch the cricket. So yeah, I mean, it's one of those, it's one of those questions, isn't it? I mean, it's great that you've got such clarity that you can remember the exact moment. For me, it was a sort of more amorphous um, happening. You know, although I remember them, like I say, I remember the first time I was at the cricket. Now we're going to move on from that. Um, what's your best moment in cricket, broadly speaking? Your best moment. I mean, we can actually take this question in any which way we want, can we? This could be as a spectator. It could be actually in our own playing mm-hmm. days. And I'm going to go. Actually, going to be quite vain here and actually go into my own playing days, which weren't of a massively high standard. It has to be said. I was a, a pretty good club all rounder, and that's as far as my career ever ever got to but there was one day where I rocked up at a, a club I used to play for called Grimmelby in Lincolnshire and Grimmelby yeah and we were playing a 40 over game Sunday afternoon I think it was and I got chucked the ball and I was only quite young at the time and I, I ran in and it was one of those days where one of those Stuart Broad days where every, everything clicked and everything was in rhythm and I took seven for 24 and I was getting men out and it was the first time that I'd ever played. I played a lot at school, and I played kind of over my age at school, if you, if you know what I mean. Because I, 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 yeah. I was, I was, all right. But I, it was the first time I'd ever played men's cricket and actually felt part of it. And I actually took a load of wickets, and all these men were actually patting me on the back and saying, "Well played." And that, that felt really good. And that, I can remember that very, very clearly as well. You know, certain certain things. It's like a, a fantastic five iron in golf or something that you remember forever. How old did you say you were? I was probably about 16 or 17, I think. Um, did they buy a jug on your behalf, or did they expect you uh, to buy the jug? There was a... I can't remember if it was the same day, but when I got into men's cricket, you start to go to pubs, and I wasn't old enough to be in pubs. I'd, I'd already started drinking a little bit with friends, because you do that, don't you? But the, yeah. I, I was giving, being given a lift back home by... I won't mention his name, but by a, quite a, a well-to-do fellow who was one of the older guys in the team who had a, a brand-new Jaguar, and we'd stopped off at this pub to have a celebratory drink, and I'd had about two pints, which was, at, my, at that stage in my life, was basically me hammered. And 
I suddenly started to get this horrible swimming feeling on the way home, and I reupholstered his Jaguar. And I remember oh. him being very, very unhappy with me, and he dropped me about half a mile from where I, my house was because he couldn't be bothered to actually take me home. And uh, I was left out in the cold, literally, and um, had to walk, walk back with uh, yeah, the smell of unpleasantness on me. Oh, and it would have been really unpleasant to have had a classic cricket tea in there as well. There'd have been a sausage roll. There'd have been an egg mayonnaise <laughs> sandwich. There'd have been a, a Mr. Kipling's Bakewell tart. Oh, good grief. That is absolutely foul. But, you know, it's, it's wonderful that your best moment in cricket did end up with you trashing a Jaguar. <laughs> Quite badly, as I remember. <laughs> what about you, Dan? What, what's your best moment in cricket? Very difficult, isn't it? Cause it, it you feel very self-aggrandizing when you think about your, your best moments. It's, it's hard. And as you say, career-wise, I mean, I've, I've scored 200s in my career, but I don't really remember them. <laughs> I mean, I remember scoring the 100th run and that, but... Um, I think after that we we did get absolutely plastered in the in the bar afterwards, and I did have to buy the jug. So that's not my best moment. I think my best moment, I'm going to say, is the, this year's World Cup final actually, for very selfish reasons. Um, I was commentating for SEN, an Australian radio station that Adam Collins had arranged that we do it for them. TNF got their their A team out, so I was I was NFI by then, which is totally understandable. So I was doing the game for Australian radio. And I was in the press box and I looked around and I saw that Artis Nawaz was there and Jared Kimber was there and Nigel Walker was there who I'd set up Test Match Sofa with and Lizzie Ammon was there and Gary Naylor who I'd done Test Match Sofa with a lot and Andy Zaltzman was upstairs doing the, the TMS scoring and I thought, wow, from, from Test Match Sofa 10 years ago, there's seven of us in the Lord's press box watching the World Cup final with England in it. And I just, you know, I sort of felt, I felt sort of proud of that. I mean, I know it's weird to feel proud on behalf of other people's achievements, but I sort of, I felt that uh, we'd all been part of something and it was, and it made me feel gratified, I think. Um, yeah, that, that. that's got, good. Got a bit emotional. Understandably so, I think. Understandably so. The Cricket Badger podcast is brought to you in association with Cricket365.com. They're ethos. We love cricket and want to make the world love it as much as we do. Join them at Cricket365.com. Thank you very much to them for their support of the Cricket Badger podcast. You don't get the best moments without having the worst moments. So... Come on then. What's what's your worst moment in cricket? And again, I'm, I'm guessing this could be this could be anything. Be on a field. It can be, you know, with a microphone in front of your face. It could be just huge and catastrophic disappointment watching, you know, your team lose or whatever. There's been plenty of all of that. I've broken fingers <laughs> and I've done all sorts of things. But this is actually quite a serious one because um, I used to work for Yorkshire, as you know. I was the media manager at Yorkshire for four years, and we had a bit of an ill-fated test match I think in uh, 2010 where we decided to stage the Pakistan against Australia game and nobody came to it very few people came to it and the club was on its knees financially and basically laid a load of people off and I was one of them and I absolutely loved working for Yorkshire County Cricket Club I like going I love going into work I did some days have to pinch myself to try and remember where I was because some days did become work but um, the day that I was taken into a room and told that um, you are no longer required um, to be working at Yorkshire County Cricket Club, 
I can understand how players feel when they're released from contracts and stuff like that. I kind of walked out of that room feeling a little bit like, I'm flipping it, this has been my home for ages. They're building this new pavilion and all of this ground and got plans for test matches and things in the future. And I thought I was going to be part of that and I ended up not being. And I was kept on as a freelancer for a couple of years after that. And I went home and away with Yorkshire, which was great fun. But yeah, to actually... To have an association with a cricket club that you really enjoyed working for end wasn't the best of days. Oh, I mean, that, that is horribly poignant. I don't think I can really, I don't think I can beat that, unfortunately. I, mean, I, I was thinking about it. I think when I left Test Match Sofa, I felt a terrible sense of loss because I'd been doing something for five years with a bunch of mates that I, that I knew and loved and I knew that it was coming to an end. And that, that was, oh, I suppose, it's similar. Uh, I think what I would choose is the one that, the moment that made me cry. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget being in, in tears after my very first game of organised cricket at school. We were bowled out for four. Only lost the game by four wickets. Chapter eight for two against us and ended up being a pro rugby league player in later life. I was only 10 years old. And I featured in the highest partnership of the innings of two, which involved a leg by and a single by a chap called Rob Morley. And then uh, I dropped two catches at mid-off and, and then was dropped from the team for the next game. And... Um, I was absolutely devastated because in my 10-year-old brain, I assumed I was going to be a cricketer. <laughs> and it turned out that I wasn't very good. I think we all have those was, dreams, don't we? When, when you were, I mean, you, you, you're actually on TMS these days, but I can remember having many nights where maybe England were playing in Australia and TMS was on overnight and I would tell my mum and dad I was off to bed to go to sleep and either turn the telly on or get under the covers and listen to the radio, you, you start thinking about what you would do in certain situations and what you would do if you got the call to play for England. And those calls never come to some of us, do they? No. No, they never do. I mean, I was, I've forever been netting on Clapton Common. And very occasionally, a scout from Surrey might be there. And I'd desperately try to impress, and then I'd, you know, miss a straight one or edge one or bowl series of wides. And, you know, I mean, it finally culminated for me when uh, I had Colts membership at Surrey and I was 15, 16, and went into the nets and they, they gave you you could have nets with the players in pre-season and uh, Martin Bicknell who's only a little bit older than me came hurtling in and bowled a series of bouncers that I barely evaded and I couldn't lay about on one and uh, that was like you know the final realisation that all of those fantasies were, were nothing but <laughs> dribble uh, but, but I'd sort of already realised that much younger right let's move on because we've got plenty to get through here now I want your I want your cricketing hero from when you were young now I did, you've asked me to come up with mine as well so I've cheated a little bit because I've taken young to expand from the age of six to about 14 okay. um, and in that time I've, I've had three heroes so I'm going to allow you similar leeway if that's all right so first of all tell us tell us when you were born well I was, I was I'm the same age as you I think Dan um, even though I look younger and I'm far better looking um, yes, correct, yes. Hence the new bowl. <laughs> Our youths were running parallel to each other, but in different ends of the country. And But as I say, I, I went down to Kent when I was young, and I used to spend every summer down there at the Canterbury Festival watching Kent play. So although I was um, up north, I was actually a Kent fan when I was very young. And the the person that really struck a chord with me when I was watching Kent was Chris Cowdery. He was somebody who was tall, he was good-looking, he... he could hit the ball, he bowled as well, so he did kind of the two things that I wanted to do. Um, so he was kind of the hero in the flesh, 
The hero that was a bit more removed was Viv Richards because he was a West Indian and kind of you trained to dislike the West Indies when they're beating you all the time, but you can't help but marvel at the fact that he was smashing the ball all over the place and was just so cool as well. You talk about, you know, in your intro, you talked about the new young women surrounding me when I scored my century. I always used to imagine Viv Richards with his shirt undone to the navel, just leaning at oh. a bar, and the women just queuing up to talk to him. He wouldn't have to move a muscle. They would just come to him. And he, but he was had just and the, and the men, frankly, everybody was everybody <laughs> yes, was exactly. Richard. So yeah. he, he was as, he was as cool as you get and could play cricket like no other. So he was he was massive to me as well. And probably if we're going to, if we're going to stretch it to three um, from back in the day, and there was a, a young West Indian chap called Eldine Ashworth, Elderdine Baptiste, because in those days we always used yes. to know everybody's initials. Um, and Eldine Baptiste used to play for Kent. And he used to be incredible on the boundary. He used to watch him field. And he used to swoop around and his arm would just kind of extend like Inspector Gadget. And he'd pick the ball up mm-hmm. and in one throw, throw it back in. And I actually half supported the West Indies team that came back maybe 84 when Baptiste was part yeah, of that right. team. And I was, I was wanting him to do so well to, to the West Indies because I used to love watching him play down in Canterbury. Well, those are three excellent choices. Mine, I'm going to give you my first hero which was John Edwards, because I was a Surrey man, and he couldn't get him out, and he was made of granite. <clears throat> and he, um, he just looked to me like he was, he was the bravest man in Britain, and you could do anything, throw the ball anywhere at his head and his chest, and he would withstand, and, and I loved that. I mean, it's very strange as a seven-year-old to have a hero who probably go about two and over if you were lucky, but there was something about him. And he also unbuttoned his, his shirt down his... Um, not quite to his navel, but there was something going on then in the 70s, wasn't there? And then, totally inevitably, uh, Botham arrived in 1977 when I was eight, and everything changed for me. Suddenly, I realised that cricket could be an explosive game. I, I mean, I'd loved it when it wasn't, but I realised that there was an Englishman who could smash the ball to all parts and could swing the ball vigorously in both directions, and he was handsome, he had a tash, and, you know, he was just charismatic. And then, weirdly, I, I didn't fall out of love with both of them. I still sort of you know, admired what he could do, but there was something prepubescent about my heroism of both of them. And then Gower arrived, and I thought, he's the man I want to be. I want to be languid. I want to be blonde and blue-eyed. I sort of was blonde and blue-eyed at the time, but I, I wasn't languid or cool or good at cricket. <laughs> um, and he just looked like... There was nothing you could do to him. You know, wherever you put the ball, he would find some mystical way of waving that wand and sending it in a gap past fielders along the ground. And he infuriated in equal measure as well. I do think that heroes have to have to be vulnerable for me. Um, you know, if they metronomically scored loads and loads and loads of runs, I don't think I would, or, or just always took wickets, I don't think I would, there'd be a hero of mine. They have to have a vulnerability and, Gower, of course, had a vulnerability, which was he was too good and could edge bowlers that other batsmen would miss. And uh, and then that would make me really, really upset. And he'd score 70 before lunch and they'd get out for the last ball before lunch and that would ruin my day. And, uh, yeah, so those those are my three. I'm allowing us three. Mr. Gower being a guest on the Cricket Budget podcast as well, so uh, good choice. Yes, he has. He has. And uh, what, a, what a lovely man he is as well. I went on a tour to Hong Kong with him last year with the Lord's Taverners, and it was, he was a thoroughly urbane and splendid company. Uh, now then, this is a question that you've asked, and I particularly love it, and I want to get your response first. 
So if you could trade lives with a current player, I wonder if it's going to be the same player that we're going to pick here. Who would that be? There's a common theme to this question, or certainly a common answer to this question, that everybody seems to pick Virat Kohli. Oh, really? Kohli, when you ask it to a current player, they all pick Virat Kohli because they want to be as good as him and they want to experience what he does and how he copes with the fandom in, in India, which is just manic, isn't it? Um, but yeah. I'm not going to go down that route. I'm going to go with a, a current cricketer who has been in the news quite a bit just recently because I think to be in Ben Stokes' body... On the fourth day, it was at uh, Headingley, which is a ground I know very well, um, and to do what he did and just to experience what it feels like to rescue an Ashes series, effectively, because basically every ball he could have been out there, the Ashes were gone. And he just played three passages to that innings, weren't there? There was the initial obdurate Stokes, he was not going to give his wicket away. Then he got spurred on a little bit by Johnny Bairstow and upped the game a little bit and started to be become a little bit more aggressive and then he was joined by Jack Leach and decided that he had to hit every ball to Bradford and it was just incredible and there are very few players I don't think even Virat Kohli could have done what Ben Stokes did in that innings at Headingley with the pressure with the context of the series and the context of the match and how disappointing England had been on day two when they were rolled for 67 to then come back and chase down 360 it's typical England you never quite know what they're going to give you and Ben Stokes potentially papered over a few cracks in that England side. But to, to have been him and to have felt all of that and to experience the crowd at Headingley, to a man and woman standing and, and giving him all the love in the world at the end of that was just incredible. And to feel that and to come down from that and to sit in the, in the dressing room after that and to be there with your, your friends and your, your teammates and stuff, just to feel that would be just immense. And I, I would love to do that for a day. Do you know... He was number two, and he was number two for, for all the reasons that you've just said to me. Uh, and, and, and the third reason is that my wife really fancies him. And, went, <laughs> and it would be nice to be fancied by my wife again. <laughs> so, so I very, very, very nearly picked him because when you sent that question through, you know, I've, I've always said that what I would want it to be was a fast bowling all-rounder. Imran Khan of all time would have been the man I really wanted to be who could bowl ferociously quickly but then when it was hurled back at him we'll be able to handle it you know because uh, it's all very well bowling fast but if suddenly you know, if, you're, if you're Chris Martin with the bat there's part of the game that's not so much fun and especially if your fielding's not too good because you're out there in the field for quite a long time but on that basis and because Ben Stokes is a fast bowling all rounder I very nearly chose him but I've instead gone for Jofra because I just have always wanted to know what it would feel like to bowl balls really, really quick, really fast and see bats and hopping about. And to be so calm temperamentally that, you know, in your first international season, you can, well, you're relied on to bowl the super over in the final of the World Cup and then hold your nerve when you've been hit for six off the second ball. And he knows he can bat and he can field. And he's just an astoundingly beautiful man. And he's so cool. And I am the antithesis of cool. I would love to know what it feels like to be both cool and lithe and physically perfect and bowl it quick. By your wife. Well, I, don't, I haven't asked her about Joffa. I know it would be me that would be fancied by your wife, wouldn't it? We'd be teammates and your wife would That's be after right. me. That's yeah. right. That's how. That's how it would go. Yeah, very possibly. Although I think she's rather fond of Jopper as well. So, um, 
yeah, I would, I would pick Jofra, but I'm, I very, very nearly did pick Edson. I just want the, you know, I just want an extra six miles an hour of pace. I'd love to bowl a ball at 96 miles an hour. What must that feel like? Hi, James. I'd just like to say many congratulations on your 100th episode of the very excellent Cricket Badger podcast. Your knowledge and passion for the game radiates across the airways and the podcasts are one of the highlights of my week. Long may you continue to entertain and inform us. Best wishes, Jane from Huddersfield. Hi, it's uh, Jonah from Liverpool. So I just want to congratulate Badger on uh, raising your bat. Finally, you can talk about 100 without moaning and moaning and moaning about the likelihood of the new competition. I'd describe the Badger podcast as a bit like Steve Smith. It's a bit unconventional, a bit strange at times. You don't think it's going to work, but it's, it's fantastic. You can't help but pay attention to it. Congratulations again. Hi, I'm Gary from Huddersfield. The best century I've ever seen. Kevin Peterson scoring 149 for England against South Africa at Edinley in 2012. What a fantastic innings. The following day, Texgate blew up and that was the beginning of the end for KP. Now then, best hundred. You've asked this question and I asked you offline, do you mean in the flesh or on the telly or whatever? So you set the parameters, entirely up to you. What's your best hundred? The best century I ever saw was before I was working at Yorkshire. I was sat in the crowd on the West Stand and I watched Damien Martin, who was playing for Yorkshire in the 2003 season, I think it was. And he was smashed on the nose. And I remember actually walking past him the, I think it was the evening before, your memory plays tricks on you. It was the evening before, I think, he went on to score the century I'm going I'm to refer to. And he had his nose basically bandaged up. He'd been belted on the, on the face. Um, but anyway, the, the innings that he played was just the innings that you'd want to play if you could be good enough to play it. You know, Ben Stokes was smashing the ball all over the place. Ian Botham, you refer to, could belt it all over. But Damien Martin that day, he, the field was set for him, regulation first-class field, and he was just getting his foot to the pitch of the ball, his nose over it, playing ridiculous cover drives. They'd pack the offside field and he was finding the gaps every single time. It wasn't just a one-off. It was he, he knew where the fielders were and he knew how to beat them. And it was just the most ridiculously good innings I have ever seen in my life. And to be able to play like that just for a, just for a second would be amazing. But he, that was, I think he went on to, he got a double century. It was far more than a run of ball. He hit 30-odd fours and a load of sixes as well mainly towards the end of his innings, but just the first century of that where every single ball went exactly where he wanted it to, it to go and he was a lovely batsman to watch was just beautiful cricket. Oh, that is beautiful. In terms of, I, I, and I can, I can visualise actually the way you've described it. I mean, I, I believe there's an article out at the moment about how unlucky he was as well. I think he's counted as one of the... the more unlucky cricketers, especially in 2005 when he got a series of terrible decisions. He was, he was like a sort of... There's a bit of Mark War to him, wasn't there? Yeah. Mark oh. War Plus, almost, in a way, when he was really on song. I'll give yeah, you that. If, you never, if you've not seen him play, click him into YouTube and just watch a few of his best knocks. He's a very good batsman oh, to watch. Totally worth it. Uh, for me, live, do you know, I, I find it hard to remember sometimes because 
a lot of the live cricket I've watched, I've watched commentating, and it's a very strange thing you have when you commentate because you are so engrossed in the moment and you're kind of simultaneously aware and trying to be unaware of the fact that you've got a microphone and it's live that you sort of manage that 20 minutes that you're on and your adrenaline's really pumping. And often I can't actually remember the details of a lot of those things. I mean, we'll come to one later, which I do remember, but it, it, that one is not my favourite hundred. So I'm going to go with the one that made me purr the most live. I was just in a really good place in my life. I was 16 years old. Um, I'd done my O-levels a year before. So I'd had this lovely summer off in England for winning the Ashes, 1985. David Gowsko and loads of runs. But do you remember when they went to the Oval? It all feels like it was inevitable England had won that series easy, but they hadn't. They were 2-1 up with one to play, and they, they needed to win the series to win the Ashes. And on that first day, uh, Tim Robinson got out early, which was unusual for that series. And then Gower and Gooch batted basically for the rest of the day. And Gower got 150-odd. And I was just in complete raptures, transports of delight. And I was there in the pavilion and I watched all of it and didn't move except for the lunch and tea break. And, and it's a similar thing to what you were saying about David Martin. I mean, the bowling attack wasn't the best that Australia have had, but they had some decent bowlers. But the match situation, and it meant at the end of that day, you knew the Ashes were coming back and you knew that there was no way Australia could win. England were two went up, England were 350 for one or 350 for two or something daft. Gooch was still there and it, it was just absolute heaven. They put on 350, those two. I think I was on a summer holiday and um, had the commentary on in the car radio and was listening to that while she was sat on the ground. Mm. Well, there was a way to do it. But I'm going to give a, just a piece of kudos because I think it needs to be remembered. Um, in all the hullabaloo about Ben Stokes' innings, which was undeniably brilliant, I missed nearly all of it live because I was commentating down to Lost Taverners and it was a tea break in our game, but I couldn't move the 10 ticket partnership for fear of jinxing it, which was stupid. Kept on hearing the shouts down below and say, what's happening? I'm going to go with an innings I saw earlier this year, or was it the end of last year? I think it was earlier this year when Crucial Pereira took uh, uh, Sri Lanka to victory against South Africa. For its sheer surprise, I mean, this is a guy who averaged 29 with the bat before then. And in a very similar situation, needing over 300 to win, nine wickets down, 74, 75 more needed. Just started pinging Dale Stain into deep mid-wicket, correctly assessed the situation, just like Stokes did, didn't he? But, you know, I think back to 1982 in Melbourne, when Alan Border shepherded Jeff Thompson to within three, four runs of victory against England, and how long he took over it. And that was the old method. But yeah. now in this world of T20, when you're left with the number 11, cold-heartedly and clearly and gimlet-eyed say, right, we're going to go at nine and over here. I'm going to hit a six, a two and a one in each over, or two fours and a one. And we're going to get 72 in, in eight overs. And that way, the number 11 only has to face a maximum of 15, 16 balls, you know. And it was just absolutely startling. Uh, I, was, I was watching that. I, was, I couldn't move. I was transported. And to think... You know, Sri Lanka are not a very good test side. They've just been thrashed by England in their own patch. They've gone to South Africa, who had a terrific bowling attack. And they were like of Rabada and Spain and what have you, Philander and so forth. And he just marmalised them. And I thought that was incredible. Absolutely incredible. And that beat, for me, my previous favourite 100, which was Gucci's 150-odd against West Indies in 1991. But if we keep talking about our favourite 100s, we will never stop. 
So we have to move on. <laughs> Next question, Badger. I'd, I'd be surprised if we don't end up with the same answer to this one. The best battle between two cricketers on a field of play that you have witnessed after Joffre Archer and Stephen Smith went hammer and tongs at Lords rather alarmingly at points. What is your best battle that you've seen? Right, well, we'll see, we'll see if we agree. Um, I was in the crowd for this one. I was at Trent Bridge. Alan Donald had the ball in hand and Michael Atherton was batting. Right, and in that uh, case, this is, this is my answer too, so you give the full answer and I'm going to agree with every single word of it, I think. I just thought that was, it was theatre, it was drama, it was anger, it was everything you want to see on a cricket pitch rolled into one little duel between two very, very fine players, Donald Bowling at the speed of light, Mike Atherton, he, he effectively, well he did, he got him out, didn't he, and it wasn't given, and it just riled Alan Donald and his eyes just lit up and glared down the wicket at Mike Atherton and Atherton just kept smirking back at him and just patting down the pitch and stayed there and gritted his teeth and kept batting for England Donald just got faster and faster and I don't think I've ever seen anything quite like that the the, the drama the, the kind of you could feel it in the ground and Atherton just standing there and at that, at that stage I, I I, I actually, when I wrote a book, I actually said that Mike Atherton took the career I would have had because I would have been that kind of player if I'd played for England. I'd have been the kind of obdurate opening batsman who basically wouldn't give an inch. And to see him doing that and just every now and again just smirking down the wicket, this glaring Alan Donald, I just thought that was incredible to watch. I can add no words to that. That is absolutely spot on. What I will say is that I gave myself a little bit of license for a second option, which was Alan Lamb versus the entire West Indies pace quartet in 1984. Uh, we all know why. He scored 300 against the best team in the world, and it was incredible to watch, but it wasn't the same thing. You wanted, you wanted an individual battle that happened in a moment in Test cricket, and I couldn't agree with you more. It was spine tingling. I'm actually getting goosebumps thinking about it now. Next question. Best moment in the commentary box. So you've done a bit of commentary. What's your best moment in the commentary box? I was commentating on a game at Headingley. Ian O'Brien was my co-commentator, and it was Yorkshire against Worcestershire in a T20 match. I think it was year before last, um, so it would have been 2017. And Ross Whiteley, who I, I, I it was one of those interviews I'd done with him in Barbados one year, where we'd done the interview in about three minutes, and then we sort of sat and chatted for about another hour after that in the sunshine. And he was a lovely lad. And really good to, good to talk to. Found out a lot about his kind of life and, and what he was planning to do and all the rest of it. And he, he walked out against Yorkshire. Unfortunately for Ross, it was in a, in a losing cause, I think. But he hit six sixes in an over. And I'd never seen it live, let alone commentate on it live. After his second six, I actually said to Ian O'Brien, he's not going to do six sixes this over, is he? And Ian O'Brien was getting more and more kind of fidgety and agitated and excited next to me. And it was young Kyle, Kyle Carver who was the left-arm spinner for Yorkshire. And it was a bit of bad captaincy, I think. It was Tim Bresnan who was setting the field. And it was a short boundary on the leg side to the slow left armour. And Ross Whiteley just kept depositing him into the west stand. And to then call the sixth ball going into the crowd... Um, into the microphone it was quite special to watch that unfold in front of you and to actually be the person telling people about it was was very very good oh. indeed oh and that, that's it i can feel that actually i can absolutely feel that those are the best moments when you're on commentary is when you're there for something that's historic and 
you lose all sense of the microphone and just the event takes over, doesn't it? It's incredible. You sort of it was, it was funny, Dan, because when, when, when the six, um, six was heading into the crowd, it was obvious the minute it left the bat, it was going to go into the, yeah. end of the ropes. I looked to my right to kind of um, basically just exchange a bit of uh, eye contact with Ian O'Brien. And Ian O'Brien had kind of leapt to his feet and was kind of like almost heading up out the door. He, he, he was only held back <laughs> by the fact that he had his earphones on. He was getting that excited about it. It was, you know, it was special. I can feel that. I can absolutely feel that. I've, I, I've been very lucky to do a lot of it for, for TMS and for BBC and County Group. And I've, had, I've had a couple of hat-tricks. When you get a hat-trick, you know, you, the first one you get, you, you absolutely transport everyone to win a game. Now, it's Tim Earl Mills, the... Sussex against Glamorgan in a T20, and doesn't really matter. It's a hat trick, you know. You go berserk, and had had one in the World Cup this year with uh, Mohammed Shami, wasn't it, against Afghanistan? I think. But I mean, I can't really look beyond um, for me calling Alistair Cook's hundred in his final innings. That was absolutely surreal because the build-up to that was. Um, I'll give you a little insight into the TMS box. There were three of us commentating. Uh, often there are four, but we had three that day. So it was me, Agus, and Simon Mann. None of us wanted to be on commentary when Alistair Cook was out. Because, <laughs> you know, it was going to be, oh, you know, how are we going to sum up? We were all thinking about Arlott and Bradman. And and you don't want to overthink when you commentate. The last thing you want to do is go in with a thought that's too extended, you know, and then it just doesn't sound natural. And also, you don't want to be the person who's sawn off Alistair Cook, who was so beloved by the country. And you could tell as the game was developing, all those standing ovations, you know, it was just going to be something so sad about him being out and us never seeing him again. So we were passing this imaginary revolver to each other when we came off air. We go, you know, and uh, Alistair Cook's on 72. Some more thoughts from Eddie Rainford Brent. And then it will be Simon Mann. And then I would pass him the imaginary revolver, which was a sort of Russian roulette gun. So now it's your 20 minutes. Good luck, mate. <laughs> and we were doing this and doing this and doing this. And then Jonathan Agnew got up and left me with Cook on 96, I think it was, wasn't it? And it was the first ball that I was on. And I knew that there was nothing here but Cook. All we could talk about was Cook. And I had to focus on it. He played the ball to backward point And he went through for a single. You know, I'm looking at Cook because you're to make sure that he's in. You're looking at the runner coming at the other end. I didn't see the ball fly across my eye line and out towards the boundary. And Ebony's like tugging at my shoulder. Look, look. And suddenly, mercifully, got it just in time and then realized he got the 100. And then just emotion took over. The crowd was incredible. Everybody on their feet. And this sort of outpouring of love and devotion for a guy that, you know, they, they haven't been that lovely to for the previous 12 months or so. But once they realised what they were losing and what was going, you know, and that time was passing, and it was a sort of, you know, we all die type moment. Entropy takes us all, even though we're still alive, and he's in a commentary box now. But um, And then I just let the crowd wash over me, and I felt this just fantastic feeling of uh, of just being lucky, so, so lucky to have been there and to be doing it. It was, yeah, amazing. I watched that back a few times. Just to, yeah, I was to say, at, these, these days, these, yeah, these days the, uh, 
the special moments are recorded on video as well, aren't they? And I've, I've watched you uh, doing that. It's a yeah, very special oh, moment for you. Well, and I mean, really. you see Aggers and you see Ebony and you see the producers. You see how much it meant to everybody and to the crowd, you know. And it was terrific. Can, can I just have one? Well, this is very self-aggrandizing, but it made me laugh at the World Cup final because I was doing it for Australian radio. This is the most fun I've had with a question ever. Damien Fleming was my co-commentator. And my first stint on radio with him to an Australian crowd was, I sat down and said, right, Damien. And this was something I had thought about in advance. I go, Damien, we need to, we need to talk. Um, what do you think Australia can do to bridge the truly gigantic gap between themselves and England in white ball cricket over the next four years? <laughs> because you really don't want, want this to persist. He, <laughs> he looked at me with a very, very cheeky grin and just to say, oh, I knew that was coming at some point. And I thought, <laughs> I've got to say that to Australia. <laughs> it, was, nice. it, was, it was silly, but, you know, I just, just want to get that in there because I enjoyed that. Now, <laughs> and obviously don't mean it, and they'll come back and win the next World Cup, and I know they've won five, so don't have it. I want to say congratulations to the Cricket Badger, James Butler, for reaching 100 episodes of the Cricket Badger podcast. I've no doubt he'll be raising his bat to the crowd for what is a, an amazing achievement. It's been a pleasure being a part of some of the episodes this summer over the World Cup and the Ashes so far. And uh, yeah, congratulations on a fantastic milestone and here's to 100 more. Hello to the Badger and his fans. Makash from Sheffield. I think you would have been bored by my voice by now. So first up, congrats James on 100th episode. I, I know it's just a small milestone on a huge, huge, huge success. Congrats on it again and I hope we can iron it out in the future. And last but not least, Australia will retain the ashes. What is your most memorable day at the cricket? It's probably because it's my most memorable moment rather than day. But again, it's down at Canterbury when I was a kid. I was probably about 12 or 13. So I was just an awkward, spotty little kid. And I was waiting for autographs after a game, as I tended to. I was a, a kind of voracious autograph hunter when I was younger. And I used to stand outside dressing rooms for hours waiting for my heroes to come down those steps. At the St. Lawrence ground, it is very much like a thin staircase between two brick walls, and you're basically staring at that bottom step for ages, waiting for the foot to, to stand on it to see who's coming down. And whilst I was doing that, I was clutching my autograph book, and this woman came up to me and just tapped me on the shoulder, and she said, excuse me, young man, do you mind doing me a favour? And I looked round at her, and she was very well-dressed and very presentable, spoke very well. And I said, um, yeah, kind of hesitantly, because I was, thinking, what on earth can she be asking me to do here? And, and she said, I'm Chris Cowdery's mother, and oh. I, I need his um, short sleeve jumper because um, I need to wash it tonight because he wants to wear it again tomorrow. So I was looking at her thinking, right, okay. And she said, would you mind just running up those stairs and just asking him if he could, uh, if he could hand it out to you? Oh. And so I said, um, right, okay. And I was petrified because this was like hallowed 
territory for me. This is, you know, not only was I going to mm-hmm. see that bottom step close up, but I was going to actually walk up the rest of them. And and she said, you need just need to go to the top of the stairs and just turn left, and they'll 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 look after you. So anyway, I, I, I started going towards these steps, and obviously a steward kind of was there and said, where are you going? And I, I explained that this woman who I'd never met before had asked me to go up these steps, and he basically said, okay. And so I, I could have been doing anything, but I wasn't. Um, and I, I walked up these steps, and I got to the top, and I turned left, and there was a, a man who I recognised who was an, old, an older-looking man who was just having a fag, and he sat on, the, on a chair just outside the dressing room, and it was Brian Luckhurst, who had played for England, didn't he, but he, he formerly yeah. Kent opening batsman and uh, then the team manager. And I said, um, hello, and he said, um, hi, what can I do for you? Kind of like semi-mocking me. And I said, um, I've just been asked by uh, Mrs. Cowdery if I could um, get Chris Cowdery's short sleeve jumper because she needs to put it in the wash tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and he looked at me and he goes, he rolls his eyes back and he just says, that's what they all say. So anyway, <laughs> I, I stand there thinking, well, what, what, do I, what do I say now? And Anyway, he gets up off his chair, puts his fag out, and then goes in and disappears for a bit, and then comes back and sits down, doesn't say anything. And before I know it, Chris Cowdery, he's dragged him out of the shower. He's come out with his towel wrapped around him, naked basically apart from that, his hair kind of like wet, and, and with his short sleeve jumper, and he comes out and he says, hello, young man, he says, here's my jumper, tell my mum that thank you very much or something and he just chucks it to me and then there I am at the top of these stairs with this short sleeve jumper looking through this door and without being too graphic there are all my heroes in this door Chris Cowdery being one of them as I've already said but there's Derek Underwood, Alan Knott and Bob Wilmer I think and Asif Iqbal uh, all stark naked just getting in or out the shower and me with this short sleeve jumper with Brian Lucas kind of grinning at me and then I ran back down the stairs, gave it to this lady, and then I stood there thinking, flipping heck, I just stood up there in the dressing room. And it was, uh, it was only a few years later, I wrote a book called Following On In The Footsteps Of Cricketing Fathers, and I, I spoke to Graham and Chris Cowdery over the phone, and I mentioned that to Chris Cowdery, and I, I, not surprisingly, he didn't, I'm sure he didn't remember the actual mm-hmm. incident itself, but he said... Uh, Oh, he said, my mum would have loved to have heard you uh, still remembering that. She would have been really, uh, really pleased that you you still remember that and count that as a special <laughs> moment for you. And but yeah, so that I remember, I remember that forever. You know, actually going up there, standing outside the dressing room, watching all of my heroes naked, and waiting for Chris Cowdery's short sleeve jumper to come out so I could, so his mum could wash it. Oh, that is absolutely beautiful. That is absolutely beautiful. Um, I can't beat that. <laughs> no, no one ever let me into the dressing room with the. With a request so absolutely ludicrous as that, uh, but I mean I've had a, a number of memorable days. I suppose I've been lucky enough. I've already mentioned one with Alistair Cook. I had uh, that extraordinary day in Brisbane when you're really pinching yourself when you think, "Goodness me, you know, I am I'm on TMS. I'm that voice on the crackly radio in the middle of the night, and England are up against it." And Stoneman and and Cook went out to bat, and there were 20 overs left on day three, I want to say it was. And the Aussies hurled everything at them, and the crowd were baying for their blood. And honestly, it was it was goosebumps. It was an extraordinary hour and a half as the lights started to go down and the sun set really quickly as it does in Brisbane. And I had that real sort of... I mean, I can, I can remember every single bit of that of that last hour and 20 minutes, and it's 
quite bizarrely. Is that, is that the most memorable? I think possibly for me, the most delightfully memorable moment was the test match in Dhaka when I was on my first tour. And when everything's happening for the first time, everything's very vivid. And we'd had this extraordinary yeah. tour, just two tests in Bangladesh, and we were being taken every day by armed convoy. And there were um, 2,000 members of the army who were all either following us or up on up on high on the on the, the tenement buildings around, you know, guarding us as we've been driven in this convoy and all the roads have been cleared. And Bangladesh got their, their first win against England in a test match. And it was a thrilling game, but uh, and England did look like they were going to pull off an unlikely win with a really good first wicket partnership and then lost 10 wickets. They all collapsed one after the other. Um, in the last session and I just went upstairs when Agus was on commentary I went upstairs to the top to take in the atmosphere and whilst the crowd you know the, the ground wasn't full it had filled up a bit but it wasn't full that all the tops of the buildings that could see the ground all had fans spectators Bangladeshis all sat on the top all cheering and it was just wonderful to think my god i'm here i'm doing this mad thing in this place that i would never have gone to otherwise never would i be likely to visit Dhaka and chittagong you know and watching a country get their first test win against england and see how much it meant to them was a it was a real privilege to be a part of i think oh yeah i think that's a moment i'll i'll never forget and i'll remember it very fondly indeed and also it gave us two days off and our hotel had a very nice pool I know that's that's that I know this that's always a bonus, isn't it? If you if you maybe get a spare day and the match finishes oh. early, you get time to actually do something rather than actually just spend you know, go from hotel to ground back again. You can actually do something with your day. And it sounds like you oh. didn't you stayed in the hotel pool but <laughs> No, I I I read I read a book and, and stayed in the pool with Gary Balance and Alistair Cook and, and the team, you know <laughs> and and caught some rays because it was early November I think. And I thought, I'm not going to get sunshine on my back again for another six months. So I made the most of it. It's that Badger style. There you have it. That's the end of the 100th edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. Myself and Dan, we got chatting, as you've probably gathered. Hopefully you found it entertaining and amusing along the way as well. But we thought we'd turn the 100th edition into 100th and 101st as well. So we'll hear part two of the Cricket Badger questions directed at myself and at Dan Norcross in the next edition of the Cricket Badger podcast. But just to reiterate my thanks from the start of the pod, thank you to you for listening in your ever-increasing numbers for your kind comments along the way. Hopefully you found it as enjoyable as me. I do really enjoy putting this together, talking to people I admire within the world of cricket and hopefully the enthusiasm for the game that I have comes across in the podcasts and enters your ears and you find it enjoyable to listen. So thanks to all the contributors along the way. Thanks to all of my guests. Far too many now to mention. Some very big names in the world of cricket have been on the Cricket Badger podcast and their presence on it much appreciated. Four to pick out though, if I may. One has been with me on the 100th and 101st edition that you'll hear very soon. Dan Norcross. I think that's his third appearance on the Cricket Badger podcast. Graham Harcastle, who is a regular on the podcast too. Thank you to him for his time. And to Ollie and to Akash for what's been quite a nice diversion this summer. And hopefully I think you've enjoyed that as well. The, the World Cup specials and the Ashes specials that we've done through the summer. 
what a summer to do it as well. But to Ollie and to Akash for their time on coming on those podcasts and, and for their thoughts and their voices and their cricket expertise, much appreciated. But they're just four of many and it's been an absolute delight to talk to everybody on the show. And now on to the next 100. 101st very soon with you and many more to come, I hope, as the Cricket Badger podcast continues and hopefully you'll continue to listen to it. From the bottom of my heart, Badgers, thank you very, very much indeed for listening. And stay tuned as we've gone from the nervous 90s and now it's time to make it a big daddy turn. I'll talk to you soon, everybody. Thank you very much indeed. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.